Amen. You can have a seat. Again, just want to say good morning to you. We're glad that you're here. Make sure to keep your Bibles open to Titus chapter 2 as we study together this morning. And as we close out our series, Fruit That Remains, we've covered quite a bit of ground over the last three months. We've looked closely at the attributes of the Holy Spirit that he implants within us at the point of conversion, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And today, we are going to land the plane on just that, the fruit of the spirit of self-control. The world defines self-control in our modern context in a way that, quite honestly, is not very different from the ancient context. In ancient philosophy, like today, self-control, from the world's perspective, is about self-mastery or asceticism. We're going to be using that word quite a bit, so it's going to be helpful for us to define it. Asceticism is the practice of abstinence or self-denial in order to gain favor for yourself, especially for spiritual reasons. The goal of asceticism, from a spiritual standpoint, is to have the goal of making yourself pleasing to the gods that you serve. Well, if we take that idea and push it into our modern context, it really doesn't look that different from the ancient times. Today, people just bow down to different gods. For example, fad diets and the desire for the right-sized waistline often uh, have the guise of health and wellness, but often have as an ascetic goal pleasing the god of physical appearance. Financial self-control from the world's viewpoint has the aim of financial wellness and planning for your future and for your retirement, but often has a basis in the ascetic God of personal peace and affluence. Make sure to take care of me. In our culture, it's anathema to think that you can be not skinny and healthy, or that you can be middle class or slightly below middle class and still be financially healthy. Within the church, we also fall victim to a misunderstanding of self-control, often as it's presented in the scriptures, that by thinking uh, that we gain God's favor by being self-controlled, leading to this transactional type of relationship with God in which we are co-opted into believing a type of Christian asceticism. The fruit of the spirit of self-control is much more than that, and it has a much deeper view. Biblical self-control is the grace to know who you will be in eternity. In our passage this morning, as Paul writes to Titus, he connects the fruit of the spirit of self-control with the grace of God. Paul's letter to Titus has a similar feel to both 1 and 2 Timothy in several ways. We studied 2 Timothy last week. Both Timothy and Titus are young pastors in these beginning churches, and there's to establish church leadership, and they're also to teach the church to live the Christian life, which means, in some sense, they are largely going to be refuting false doctrine. Where they differ slightly is that with Timothy, Paul addresses many specific things of doctrine. But with Titus, he paints with a bit of a broader brush. But the essence is still the same. Right doctrine and right living according to right doctrine. 
for the early church, those two things went hand in hand with each other. Knowing right things about Jesus should, live, should, should happen out of the way of transformed living in Jesus. And out of this right living and this right knowing, in the middle of it is the fruit of the spirit of self-control. By way of reminder, it would be helpful for us to remind ourselves of where we started this series and what it looks like to have a life devoid of the Spirit. We read this in Galatians 5, 19 and following. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what a life apart from the Holy Spirit looks like, identifying marks of a life that rejects Jesus Christ, a life lacking self-control. So we are to avoid these things, but how is that any different than asceticism? This is where Self-control as a biblical virtue and as a fruit of the Holy Spirit can be difficult to understand because we can find ourselves in a place of possibly having contradictory ideas. You see, I thought that by submitting myself to Jesus Christ, I was therefore submitting control of my life over to him. So how can I be both God-controlled and self-controlled at the same time? How in the world am I expected to live a life that is submitted to God and to be self-controlled when I couldn't be trusted with my own salvation in the first place? These are good questions to ask yourself and to ask of the Bible. In order to get there, we need to start by understanding and defining biblical self-control. Biblical self-control is the supernatural ability to pursue personal holiness. Let me say that again so you can write it down or you can underline it if it's in your bulletin. Biblical self-control is the supernatural ability to pursue personal holiness. In our passage this morning from Titus 2, Paul tackles the topic of self-control and attaches another biblical concept, the concept of grace. In Titus 2.11, he begins by saying, For the grace of God has appeared. Now let me just stop there for a moment. Circle that or underline it or highlight it in your Bible that the grace of God has appeared. That phrase is going to be critical for us in understanding the biblical virtue of self-control and how it differs drastically from asceticism. In this passage, Paul is going to tell us what the grace of God is, and he's going to tell us three ways in which the grace of God appears. But first, what does the grace of God look like? If it appears, it has to be apparent. We have to be able to see it. He tells us what it looks like in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Who, referring to Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. What does grace look like? 
How do we know that it's appeared? It's in that first clause of Titus 2.14. He tells us that grace is the glorious, amazing, earth-shattering reality that Jesus Christ gave himself in order to redeem us. Jesus Christ gave himself. He didn't give something that belonged to someone else. He didn't give something that belonged to himself as in a possession. He gave himself. He offered himself. He sacrificed himself on a cross so that what might happen, according to the passage, that we would be redeemed. That we would be purchased back. This is important in understanding the fruit of the spirit of self-control. To be redeemed, to be purchased or in this case, to be ransomed, as Jesus himself put it in Matthew 20, 28, means that without Jesus Christ, you are captive to something else. You belong to something else. We saw it last week when we looked at uh, the book of Timothy in Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, in which he says, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. So if prior to knowing Jesus Christ, we were captured, we were ensnared, we were out of our senses, doing the will of evil, and according to where this series started, when we looked at poison fruit, all of the deplorable realities that were found in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, were real for us when we lived a disinherited life. Our life wasn't out of control. Our life was in complete control. The control of evil. We had no way of escape. We were bound. We were captives. And yet Jesus Christ steps into human history and he puts himself on an instrument of torture to die a death that he didn't deserve to die to pay a ransom for the penalty of sin that he did not commit in order to free us from the bondage of sin. Friends, that is grace. He gave what we didn't deserve in order to redeem us, to set us free from captivity, and that in the future is guaranteed. Friends, that removes the idea of asceticism. We gain no favor with God in our pursuit of holiness. Our favor with God was bought on the cross through Jesus Christ's substitute, substitutionary death for us, in which he grants us his spirit and we live a transformed life, not because of our work, but because of his work. In that way, self-control is not a demand placed on us, but a gift given to us. The pursuit of holiness through self-control, fleeing things that God knows will destroy us, that deny the grace of God, have an alternative in self-control that helps us to reflect the perfect holiness of God. Look at what Titus says in the latter half of, two, of Titus 2.14. He says he died to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. He redeemed us for a purpose. This side of heaven. He redeemed us from all, unlawless, all lawlessness and to purify us for himself. 
When the grace of God appears, he opens the door for the pursuit of holiness for us to respond to the gospel. This is the first thing that the grace of God does when it appears. Self-control begins with the grace of salvation. If Jesus Christ died and rose again in order to purify himself of people for his own possession, as Paul affirms here, it is natural to believe that at the moment that Jesus takes possession of you, at the moment that you have been redeemed, at the point at which you are ransomed and set free, the purification begins. It starts at the moment of salvation. But the joy is that Jesus doesn't just move you from bondage to bondage. He moves you from bondage to freedom. And in that freedom, he gives you his Holy Spirit as a seal of your salvation, of your security in Christ. In that instant, he gives you the ability to do supernaturally what you are incapable of doing in your spiritual blindness. To see ungodliness and worldly passions as a prison cell, as a means to hold us captive, your eyes are open to the place that you never want to be again. Self-control is the supernatural ability to pursue personal holiness, or to say it another way, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit through which you pursue the purity that marks someone who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has both secured our holiness and is making us holy this side of heaven. And self-control is God's training tool in which we participate with him in a growing desire for purity. This is the second thing that the grace that appears does. Self-control grows through the grace of training. According to Paul... The grace of God appears for the purpose of this in verse 12. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. The power of the grace of God does something wonderful for us as we walk with Jesus Christ Whereas you had no power apart from Jesus Christ, the scripture affirms that you had no power. In Ephesians 2.1, we are told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which means that we were utterly under the control of evil. But when we respond to the grace of God and we realize that salvation is set aside for us, he doesn't control our lives in the way of simply transferring power from evil to him. No, he gives us power in relationship to evil. By the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, he grants you the ability to look evil dead in the face. All of your history, all of your sin, all of your failings from the past that formerly held you captive, he gives you the ability to look them square in the face and the Spirit says to you, go ahead, I've given you power. Go ahead and say it. I know you want to say it. I'm empowering you to say it. Say it the way that Jesus said it in Matthew 4.10. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, I will worship worship God and only him shall I serve. At the beginning of this passage, Paul begins with the word for. This is important. 
Because he's showing that there's a product of grace that's happening in the lives of particular people. He notes it in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul identifies Titus directly in verse 1, charging him to teach what accords with sound doctrine. But if you were to look at verses 1 through 10, notice what else he does. He gives instructions to older men to be sober-minded and to live in self-control. He tells older women to be reverent and sober-minded, not slaves to wine or to be self-controlled. Younger women to be self-controlled. Younger men to be self-controlled. Bond servants, which is another way of saying a servant under their own volition. These were employees. He says, be well-pleasing and not argumentative or be controlled in the workplace. What Paul is saying here is that there is not a group of people to which this teaching on self-control doesn't apply. Young men, you have room today to say yes to Jesus Christ, this teaching on self-control is for you. If you're a young woman who desires to pursue holiness and renounce ungodliness, this teaching on self-control is for you. If you are an older woman seeking to flee youthful passions and to be a model for younger women, this teaching on self-control is for you. And if you are an older man who has the ability to be a leader and even elder within this church, this teaching on self-control is for you. There is not a single soul sitting in this room today or watching online who can't look evil square in the face and say, not today. Not today. I'm in control. Not because of any power that I have, but because of the spirit that dwells within me, that gives me the power to be self-controlled and to pursue holiness. Now, that being said, now that we've puffed out our chest and we've thumbed our nose at evil, here's the painful yet hopeful reality. Often, we don't do that. We fall into temptation. We succumb to its allure. We fail, and we ask the question, am I even really saved then? There are several things in this passage that should give you hope. Take note of the language that is used here by Paul. He says that you are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He doesn't say that we have fully conquered ungodliness and worldly passions in this present age. Training connected to the term present age in the text places this side of heaven in its proper place. This place is a training ground for eternity. It's a dressed rehearsal. Jesus is purifying you for himself there, not here. If the Spirit dwells within you, you belong to him, but this side of heaven is where he purifies you. In heaven is where you are purified in eternity. While this may seem disappointing, it should be filled with hope for three reasons. The first reason is because as we are being purified, we have the ability to recognize what holiness looks like and what it doesn't look like. Ungodliness will start to become foreign to us. It's going to be an unwelcome stranger that we no longer want in our lives. The second is because it gives us a framework for growth. 
as we exhibit self-control in the training ground of this present age, we have the ability day by day to have another opportunity to grow in holiness, even when we suffer ungodliness, because we taste the wonderful taste of holiness. But the third reason, and perhaps the most important reason, is the third way that the grace of God appears in this passage. Self-control endures in the grace of waiting. It endures in the grace of waiting. The third way that the grace of God appears for us is that it provides us hope. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice the language of appearing. Grace appears at the beginning of the text, and we wait for glory to appear. Friends, note the confidence that this should give you. If the grace of God has, in fact, appeared, we've experienced it in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we get to the point of purification, if we know that grace has appeared, we know that Jesus Christ is a possession of ours and we are a possession of his, we can have confidence that his glory will appear, that Jesus will return. That is our blessed hope. Friends, there will be a day when lawlessness, ungodliness, and worldly passions will all cease. The progressing holiness that we experience in exhibiting self-control now is a taste of what eternity will be like when purification is complete, when salvation will be finalized and the full glory of God will be revealed and experienced. That is what the fruit of the spirit of self-control does for us now. Self-control is the grace to know who we will be in eternity. And as we come this morning to the table of the Lord, this table represents everything that we see in the first part of Titus 2.11, that the grace of God appears. That the grace of God appears through a man, Jesus Christ, who comes in the flesh, who gives his flesh and gives his blood in order that we might have life in eternity and the power of the Holy Spirit. As our worship team comes and Danny and our elders come forward, uh, today we want to serve you in the taking of the ordinance of the Lord's table.